0: Welcome to Ask an Innovator, where we interview senior executives about innovation. You can find us at AskAnInnovator.com or subscribe with your favorite podcast app. I'm your host, Josh Barker, CEO of City Innovation Labs. Welcome to Ask an Innovator. Today, I've got with me Tim Lavingood. Welcome, Tim. Really appreciate you being here. Glad to be here. Awesome. So, Tim is the Executive Director at Technology Innovation Center. Is that right? That is correct. Can you give a little bit of background of yourself and and a little bit of background about technology innovation center?
1: Well, I've been working as the executive director here for quite a few years. So those are kind of the same thing. We are a technology based business incubator that's actually been in operation since the eighties for about 30 years, 31 years. And we have worked with over the years, several hundred different kinds of startups providing space and services and networking to help uh, innovation-based companies get off the ground.
0: Awesome. So, and I'm reading on here, 25,000 square feet. That's, that's quite a bit for 30 to 50 technology-based startups. Is that right?
1: That is, that, that was the case. We're actually, and I can get into that, but we're in the process now. We're making a transition to the hard sciences right now and there are reasons for that and we are working on a build out of a laboratory space in northbrook one of the other
0: suburbs here i'd love to hear a little bit more about that can you give a little bit more details about your transition to the hard sciences
1: yes we've been around since the 80s and we came in right around the same time as you know the beginning of the uh, original dot-com boom I think because of that perspective, I am seeing very similar circumstances now in the hard sciences, in new materials, in life science, in energy that we saw in the 80s in information technology. And I think it is now time for us, I think we're most valuable in dealing with now this just emerging generation of scientist entrepreneurs. To me, the key is the tools. And just as in the 80s, the tools for information technology got dramatically and rapidly cheaper, smaller, and smaller. And that results in entrepreneurship, as opposed to people who, because of the expense and the expertise required to use the tools, have to go to work for larger organizations. And I think we are now seeing just emerging the dawn of an age of the independent entrepreneurial scientist. And I think the implications of that actually make the information technology revolution seem small by comparison.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. So before you'd have all these scientists really not be able to afford the equipment, the space, all of the the different things needed for true innovation to really happen. And now. You're essentially providing that space. You're providing the equipment, loaning it out to them, so to speak, for kind of a monthly cost.
1: Yes, we're redesigning, we're creating what we're calling a workstation for a wet laboratory. And what we're basically trying to do is allow scientists to generate valid data that proves their concept in circumstances where they're not working for a big corporation that's going to own everything. Approximately now, more than 95% of all scientific intellectual property by economic value is owned by organizations with valuations over a billion dollars. So it's the most concentrated asset class in the developed world. And that is just about to break wide open now. In my view, it's a profound trend that I think we're in the forefront
0: of. Sure. Awesome. I'd love to hear some examples of the different companies that are doing innovative things that might not otherwise be doing that if they weren't in the position they're in now.
1: Well, a company that started with us in 2015 called Hazel Technologies. They came to us, graduate students at Northwestern with $6,000 they got from a business plan competition. They were working on producing a material, a a nanoscale powder that actually controls the ethylene, the gas concentration that causes fruits and vegetables to ripen and then to spoil. And that by controlling this without additives, without GMO, they are able to extend the shelf life of produce. And that company was able, because of the tools, because of our environment, to get started and generate data that proved the effectiveness of that material with six thousand dollars up front to pay rent for six months. And that meant that as this data was generated, they owned it, as opposed to what would have happened if they were at a large company. And now that company is worth as I understand it, about $30 million, sure. and they're doing great. Last year, I guess they preserved, they've handled over 200 million tons of fresh produce. And so they were able to do this because they had the training, they had the skills, but they were able to do this as entrepreneurs.
0: That's amazing.
1: Another company was designing a peritoneal kidney dialysis device. And again, was able to get into our facilities and generate the data necessary to raise I believe a million dollars to complete the prototype and under conditions where they owned it
0: that's awesome yeah it's a lot like when software became more approachable right when you started to get this whole new wave of software is the thing and software engineering became a discipline and a practice because it was the personalized computers right it sounds like the equipment was a lot more accessible And that's what it sounds like you're really doing for the hard sciences is you're really making it so that the equipment is a lot more accessible versus only huge facilities.
1: It's cheaper and it's smarter. There's a pipette robot that can run some of your uh, wet chemistry that costs $5,000. There is a device for producing uh, pharmaceuticals that sits on a desk. There are gene sequencers now that are desktop and cost $20,000. Ten years ago, there were five places on earth that could do gene sequencing, and they were all giant research institutions. Those are the kinds of things. It's basically Moore's Law has come to the sciences. And fundamentally, what Moore's Law is, is better, cheaper, smarter tools, and that equals entrepreneurship.
0: That's amazing. That's awesome. How does one join this facility and how many people do you have in it? How many startups?
1: Well, we're in a flux. We can't have the same number of startups that you can have in some of those WeWork type spaces, obviously, because the equipment still is much more extensive. Yeah. But we're working now with about four companies. And as I say, we're building out space as we speak. As a matter of fact, I'm going out there tomorrow. And so we're really in a, a launch mode right now sure. for this new version of incubation
0: that we're about to set out okay now when is this when are you guys looking to launch it
1: well we hope to be able to open the doors uh, this spring and i'm in discussions right now with northwestern one of the differences also with the sciences is that because science is so bound to large institutions and organizations in a way it means that you know scientists Only come from a few large companies and they come from universities, they come from hospitals, they come from federal laboratories. So, actually, the marketing and outreach to find these people is in a lot of ways much easier. Yeah. Because in the whole Chicago area, there's really only seven, eight places where scientists congregate. And so right now, I think our main focus is Northwestern Northwestern and the medical school and the engineering and science schools up here in Evanston.
0: So one of the things I'm really curious about is a little bit of the background of it is how did you end up coming to this thought? Obviously you have to have been in this space. You have to have had some kind of background to recognize a problem in the industry. How did you come to this idea or discovery of this problem to fix?
1: But there's there's two re- two basic things. One is that because we've been dealing with innovation-based startups for so long, we were able to recognize, I think, a bit of this pattern that what was happening now in the sciences was so much like what was happening going back to the IBM. 286, 486 computers for $4,000, then they were $2,000, and now the device I'm talking with you on right now is $200. Yeah. And so when I started seeing, and I had learned, at least my perspective is that, again, for me, that toolkit is critical in what made the IT boom of entrepreneurship possible then as the entrepreneurs come in, of course, they bring a totally different perspective than the larger organizations who have all their pre-existing operating procedures, goals, and objectives. Once you have these tools, you can have rather than have an organization use innovation to promote its goals, you have the innovation itself promotes the creation of the organization. And fundamentally, that's the difference, I think. That's what entrepreneurship brings to the table when it's enabled by the tools. And so I had learned that as a younger guy watching these software people and the HTML people in the early days and even, you know, Archie and Veronica in the days before the World Wide Web. And gradually, I noticed this consistent pattern was that these were people who had perfected the use of tools that hadn't existed 10 years before, and they therefore were creating all these new possibilities to take information technology in a direction that IBM never would have done. And so that enabled me to see among the scientists and see going into laboratories and seeing what they're able to do, and seeing data being put online in real time, as opposed to the two years it took to go through peer review, and I was able to put those trends of how science is done and how science is enabled by the new equipment to recognize that this is a lot the same, and to realize that it's no longer in the sciences where you have to start out by assuming a million dollars, which until recently was the case. It's just beginning to be not the case anymore. I don't want to exaggerate. This is very early days. But as I say, Moore's law has arrived. Five years from now, everything's going to be smaller and cheaper and smarter. And you're going to be able to generate valid data by yourself. And I just think that's because we've lived it before, we recognized it, I think, before other people, before even most scientists. Sure.
0: Now, going back to that that refrigeration, keeping fruits and vegetables fresh for longer without that facility, without the equipment, without all the stuff that's provided, like what would you say that would cost? Obviously it would cost a lot more because of the fact that they would have to be embedded in a larger organization. I mean, in terms of cost timeline, is that double, triple, quadruple? What factor are we talking about of savings here for someone in the hard sciences?
1: Well, the, the, the savings financially uh, uh, is actually, again, because we have, and we're still in the process of redesigning the lab to create these very small workstations that have a hood and a bench and a shared water supply, deionized water, maybe a freezer to enable scientists to come in very cheaply because the space is so much smaller laboratories typically are designed with one large user in mind. And so actually the lab, that's one of the reasons we're engaged in this build-out. The laboratory we're creating is very different and it's going to be much more dense. There's a lot more hoods per square foot. And so we're going to try and enable people to come into a small workstation for $1,000 a month. $1,200, we're not quite sure yet, but in that neighborhood uh, that makes it possible for people to generate the data for a beta customer, a regulator, or an investor. And that's going to be our job is to produce that intellectual property. It's columns of numbers. That's what we're all about. And so we're taking away all of the other standard operating procedures, all of the fixed um, operating costs that characterize a large organization, so that you're able to move faster and you are able to move more cheaply because you're not covering an accounting department. That Hazel that you were mentioning again is a little unusual because they're actually out there building a brand. A lot of what these scientists are doing, I think, is simply proving their concept. And once they prove their concept, they create a liquidity event. They, they now have an asset. And that asset can go to investors. And so many of them are not seeking to build a product and to market that product. The They are seeking to do basically the R&D for the larger players. Sure. That makes sense. And then they get their payoff when they sell it.
0: And speaking of that, a lot of times in co-working spaces, I know in Chicago, 1871 is a big one, is being able to take people from larger organizations mm-hmm. and embed them alongside startups, there's some kind of magic that happens there, right? There's innovation and collaboration that happens between startups and large companies. They're trying to do that by creating these innovation outposts. So one of the questions in my mind is, do you see that happening? These large companies that, or hard science companies, putting people in this place that you're describing as almost like an innovation outpost to partner with startups, to talk to them about what they're doing.
1: Yes, I think one of the big differences, and this is, again, a lesson that we were able to learn, is in the early days, the peer group, the network, is much more difficult to assemble. And I think we're people who have the organizational experience to be able to do it. Information technology now has a lot of what I call the been there, done that mentors that people can meet and talk to, and a lot of people in large corporations also had experience in startups. And so there's a blending there, but that took many, many years. A lot of the, uh, the angel investors, seed fund people also do have the direct experience of knowing what it's like to start up an IT-based company. There are very, very few experienced entrepreneurs in the sciences, just as there were very few IT entrepreneurs in 1986 when this program started. Most of the money was coming from people who made their money in real estate and didn't really understand. One of the main reasons for that dot-com boom, the money and the innovators didn't really understand one another. And so a lot of mistakes were made. That is the challenge, I think, right now. You're going to college with professors in biology and in chemical engineering that have no experience in entrepreneurship, and their colleagues have no experience in it. Again, computer science went from being probably the single least entrepreneurial discipline in the 80s to perhaps the most entrepreneurial now. But that took a generation for that mentoring and for that networking really to take root and i think we're one of the few organizations that knows how to do this in the early days
0: sure that's awesome yeah and i could definitely see how that would be a benefit normally you would not get as diverse of, of opinions and you know i've worked in many co-working spaces it's always a pleasure to meet diverse people diverse opinions to be able to take them and apply them even directly to your work and so i could easily see how that would be a great benefit to not only having mentors, but also having peers that are trying to create some hard science products and trying to get feedback or talk to people that are doing the same thing. So that seems like that would be also an added benefit.
1: One of the things that I think characterizes this stage is that a lot of these people, some of the examples I gave earlier, actually, as individuals, Scientists that are thinking in these terms tend to think they're alone. They're not aware yet of this emerging. Some of the networking work that we're launching right now is to encourage these people to meet, to get together, and to realize they aren't the only ones. I think what you're describing, there's a culture that grows up that some of these workspaces that you're talking about are able to take advantage of. We are just in the early days of that occurring now. So I think that the networking is really crucially important because as I say, there's not professors, there's not colleagues, there's not, you know, around the dinner table, there's not family that has a scientific background and an understanding of business building. Scientists are overwhelmingly employees at this point. Virtually 100%, and they own almost none of their work. There is no other profession right now that contributes so fundamentally and so massively to society and the way we all live that owns so little of what they produce. And that's what's gonna change. And once it changes, the financial opportunities and the Shifts in the marketing strategies is going to be, I think, really profound.
0: Yeah. Have you talked to anyone over at at M Hub in Chicago? Yeah, yeah, Yeah. sure. It seems like they're doing something... They're similar. I was just going to say, yeah, they seem pretty similar.
1: We're actually creating wet labs. This is going to be, in my view, a little more scientific. We had another company, for example, that produced an aluminum alloy. And actually was able to do the microscopy that was required, and they had furnaces for preparing their samples. It's my view that we are going to be much more directly focused on people in the hard sciences than in the engineering and, and you know the makerspace kind of thing. And it's that basic, critical role of data we want to be the place where you can go under flexible terms of ownership and create valid scientific data, not building things necessarily, sure. but producing the data.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And so MHub's more on the physical product side, meaning not necessarily hard science like robotics, connected devices, right. sensors, that sort of thing. But yeah, you're more on the hard science side.
1: Yes. Yeah. And we actually have a sensor development, uh, project going on with us right now for it's a sensor device for early detection of glaucoma.
0: Oh, nice. Awesome. That's a Northwestern spinoff. Yeah. Well, we're going to take a quick break. I'm going to go into a the, something called the innovation hot seat. So these are some questions that are just about you and love to know a little bit more about you. So I'm going to rattle them off one by one. We'll go through them. Who is one person you would invite to dinner? Could be Alive could be where they're they've passed already anyone. Huh.
1: Well, apropos of what we're talking about, there's an old economist, sometimes called the entrepreneur's economist, a German named Joseph Schumpeter. And anybody who hears this, I recommend you Google that and uh read the first couple chapters of his book called Economic Development. And I would really love to talk to him because I think way back in the thirties, he had this figured out better than anybody has of oh. innovation and entrepreneurship in creating economic growth.
0: Awesome. I'll have to look him up. I'm not too familiar with him. So I'll, I'll look him up.
1: Very few people have ever heard of him, but he's profoundly important.
0: And then what is one thing you'd bring on a desert island with you? It can't be a person. Bring on a desert island with me.
1: Is this an island I'd like to get off of? Yeah. Or am I happy there?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, you can make your own.
1: Well, I suppose I would want a uh a mirror or some kind of signaling device because I would probably want to get off.
0: Makes sense. So what about what's the last book you read? Because you're asking about books. Yeah, your favorite book, and then somehow it got cut off. So
1: my favorite
0: book? Well,
1: I like. I was always a fan of Mark Twain. Yeah. Yeah. So I, you know, Huck Finn was a good book.
0: Uh, good classics. Mark Twain's a good author back in the day. That's good. And what? What about the a favorite place you've traveled and why?
1: I used to do a lot of work in Japan, and I found that to be a combination of being both very familiar and very foreign at the same time. It's it's familiar because it is a very middle class place. It's the sort of thing that we understand. I've been to other countries where, you know, in Latin America where living standards are very, very different, but at the same time, it's Japan's culturally so unusual compared to the United States that I think that juxtaposition of feeling very much at home and at the same time seeing things that are so totally different, I found very interesting. Sure.
0: That makes sense. I've never been to Japan. That seems like a nice place to go. Oh, it's great. It's very
1: very friendly. Culturally, they are very, very different. Their view of the world is very different. So it's fascinating to go there and try and do business. And yet, as I say, these are people who have living standards very similar to what I've been fortunate to enjoy. And I think it's a fascinating place.
0: Yeah, it sounds fascinating. And so what can you tell listeners that they can take and apply to their business or their careers?
1: As I say, I've been in the first 18 months of building a business for about 20 years. And so I've seen that over and over again. And I think one of the most important things is that there is very little that can make someone more conservative than having been at the cutting edge a year or two earlier. And there is this tendency as organizations grow, this is what Mr. Schumpeter talks about, You slip into what he called the circular economy, where you get more and more conservative because that's necessary to sustain a more and more complex organization. And so I think the most important thing to me is throughout your career and throughout the evolution of your business is to remain an innovator, to remain innovative, to be willing to change the way you do things, be willing to learn new things. I think that that's the, the pressure to become bureaucratic is tremendous. And an old mentor of mine, I won't get into any detail, but he used to keep ran a very large company. Fate brought us together for an extended period of time. And he said the biggest issue with a big company is what he called the duality of management. And that is you've got to deal with 800,000 customer interactions a day and make sure they're all very predictable. And at the same time, you have to be on the cutting edge for what happens next. And he said that the biggest challenge of running a large organization is balancing those two often very contradictory and very conflicted forces that work within a single organization. And I think Creating that balance, understanding that balance is probably the one critical thing. people can do that, are going to do greater things than
0: the people who don't. Good advice. Very good takeaway. And with that said, Tim, I really appreciate your time on this episode of Ask an Innovator. It's been a pleasure chatting. And thanks for all your your wisdom. Well, thank you. I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to Ask an Innovator. Visit us on our website, www.askaninnovator.com. This podcast has been sponsored by City Innovation Labs.